If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 this morning, and next week we'll be in verses 8 through 24. So it works out well. The Sunday before and after Thanksgiving, we'll be talking about what a wreck we've made of this good world, all right? Let me say, though, as we transition into into reading the passage that we have today, be mindful of what it is that we have covered so far or what we've seen so far in the first two chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 2 presents to us uh, a God who is um, above everything, who exists on his own without any need of help, fully content and fully satisfied as he is, and yet who freely chooses to create this world and everything in it, and he does so by the word of his power, bringing something into existence where nothing was before. And that one of the ways that this God reveals himself, he reveals himself to be a good God in that everything that he makes is good and nothing less than good. And His goodness is displayed in part by taking man and woman, making them His image bearers so that they can share in a meaningful relationship with Him. And in chapter 2, we see that in addition to that, in His goodness and in a way to relate to them personally, rather than remaining at a distance and remaining aloof, He gives to man and woman meaningful work in His creation to be able to share with Him in this work that He has begun in bringing creation about. They get to do the work joyfully together to sustain and bring more order and design and creativity to what God has already set in motion. And another mark of God's goodness is that He graciously makes it evident to Adam that he cannot do the task that has been set before him on his own. And so God graciously gives him a helper, and not just any helper, but a helper that is uniquely created and fashioned to fit with Adam so that the two of them can live life in this good created world with joy and contentment and delight as they go about working for their king and fellowshipping with him. Chapter 2 ends with verse 25 with a statement that says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a statement there of innocence. There is is nothing that exists at this point in time that would cause any embarrassment or any shame or any hesitancy. Everything is known, both literally and symbolically. Everything can be shared. And there is nothing that would inhibit or prevent this creation and these relationships from thriving as we go forward. So Genesis chapter 3, in light of all that, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not certainly die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would cause us to see the truth that is revealed in these verses in Genesis. And that, Father, rather than dwelling on our sin and failure, which of course is true, uh, which we can't run from, that even in the disorder that we see brought about in creation through man's disobedience, that you would quickly turn our minds to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. To know that what we have ruined by our own sin, you are putting back together by your Savior. We thank you and we praise you, and it's in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. Doug, if you could back off on my volume just a little bit. Okay, 3 1 through 7. Thank you, Doug. 3 1 through 7. One of the things that struck me as I was uh, reading through and thinking over and, and studying this passage is the tendency, and I, I won't try to, uh, to bring you in on my, uh, on my biases or failures, but my tendency at least to read 3, 1 through 7 and to, and to put more focus on the process of temptation and sin, the mechanics of it, rather than looking just maybe one step more or one layer deeper to see what 3, 1 through 7 says about the nature of temptation and sin, right? And there's a, there's a difference, right? One of the reasons that we have this passage here is, of course, it's giving us an account of how all of this came to be, how on the one hand, all of it is good. We even see goodness in the world around us, and yet we also recognize that there are things that are not right with this world. How did it happen that we have this tension in a glorious creation that is tragically flawed? Not just in creation in the way that the world operates, but even in the way that we operate as people in it. And so this passage is intending to, to show us what it is that caused this good creation to go bad, so to speak. What it is that caused this good thing that God did with His image bearers, what caused them to go from good and in a state of blessing to living under a curse. But there's also more than that because all that God gives us in His Word, Paul says in the New Testament, is written for our instruction and for our encouragement. So what I'm sort of challenging and encouraging us and hopefully will do in the time that we have this morning is to say when we read these verses, yes, by all means, take note of certain patterns or methods or techniques that exist when we are being tempted, much like Adam and Eve are tempted here, when we sin, but don't lose sight of what it is that this passage of Scripture is revealing about the very nature of temptation and sin itself, because ultimately I think what Genesis 3 is doing is that it's giving us a glimpse of what lurks in our fallen, weak, corrupt hearts. Case in point, let me try to, well, let me do it this way. Let me try to give you the three points that I'm going to try to hit so that if things start to go off the rails during the sermon, I've at least done this for you, okay? Here's what we're going to try to do. Three points that I'm going to try to drive home. Number one, sin is more than a bad choice. Sin is more than just a bad choice. Or Use whatever word you want, a mistake. 
a momentary lapse. Number two, sin brings shame. Sin brings shame and a desire to hide. Sin brings shame and a desire to hide. And number three, sin puts us in need of a second Adam. Sin puts us in need of a second Adam. So, number one, sin is more than a bad choice or a simple mistake. There's a, there's a little bit of a play that we, that we don't get in the English at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3. The man and the woman are described as being naked and not ashamed. And then in 3.1, the serpent is introduced as being crafty. In, the, in Hebrew, the word for naked and the word for crafty sound similar. And so one, one guy has said, to try to get this in English, we might read it as something like, uh, and the man and his wife were both nude and not ashamed. Now the serpent was shrewd. You hear that? Nude and shrewd. So right up front, we're being drawn in to the idea that something about what the serpent is about is intending to play on the innocence or the unwittingness of man and woman as he enters into this dialogue. He goes into this conversation knowing full well what the objective is, whereas they are subtly led along step by step. The way then that Satan engages, and I I do take that the serpent here is Satan, is a representation of him, the way that he engages is he starts with a conversation about God's Word. So notice he begins with what seems to be a fairly harmless or innocent question. Indeed, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, it sounds like if you read it that way that what Satan is doing or what the serpent is doing is just merely trying to to make sure that the facts are established, make sure we're all on the same page and we have a common understanding. But the question is, more than that, the question has a motive to it. It's not an honest question. Uh, uh, ESV and NIV translate this well when, when it says, the Satan says, has God really said In other words, the question is not merely probing for facts. The question is trying to present to Eve the possibility that God is not all that He has made Himself out to be. Do you mean to tell me that God made all of this and is not going to let you have any of it? That's That's what the question is about. Do you mean that there is all of this fruit ripe for the picking and you can't have it? Why would God do that? Did he, did he really say that? Tell me I'm just, I'm hearing things wrong. Right, the question ultimately is not about quotations. The question is not about a bare text or command. The question goes to the motive or the reasoning behind the command. Why would God do this and then say that? To her credit, the woman comes back and responds well and says, well, no, 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 no. Actually, God did not say that. We can, we can eat from, from all of these trees But there is one tree that we can't eat from, and now the focus has gone from what God has made available to what He has prohibited. So you set an innocent, angelic little child in a room with plenty of toys and things to keep them entertained and happy for hours, and then you say, but don't play with the outlet. Do 
What happens? That's right. He's going to want to play with the outlet. And unless he has someone to physically drag him away, he will play with the outlet. He loses sight of all that has been given to him, all that's been placed around him for his enjoyment and delight, and he focuses on the one thing that has been withheld from him. No, we can, we can eat. We have all of these trees that, that we can feed on that are delicious, that are good, enjoyable. But there's one tree, he put it right in the center, and he said, don't eat from that one. And Eve, again, to her credit, is able to explain why it is that they are not to eat of it, because if we eat from it, we'll die. And then the serpent comes back with the response. Now it's no longer merely a question about what God said with enticing possibilities about why He would say it. Now it's just an outright denial that what God said is true is in fact not true. You won't die. The reason that God said you can't have that is because He's trying to keep something from you. He knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be divine. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What do, by attacking God's Word this way, what is the serpent doing? The serpent is saying something about God Himself. And before we go on, let me, let's just establish this point. Understand that because God reveals Himself clearly to us through His Word, you cannot tamper with God's Word without tampering with the nature of God. What you say about God's Word, how you view the counsel and commands, the promises and the rewards of God will shape the way that you see God Himself. So by denying, by calling into question and then denying what God has said to the man and the woman, the serpent says, well, actually, you can't trust what God has said. You can't take His Word at face value. Let me tell you what's really going on. What's really going on is that He told you not to take from this because there are things that you could get that He doesn't want you to have. This good God that made this good creation that has filled this world with things that you can delight and enjoy in, that you can share with Him, that you can share with each other, really and truly, there is another good behind this door if you just take this fruit. He hasn't given you your fair share. You could be far wiser than what you are now. He's trying to keep you down. He doesn't want you to be as wise and insightful as what He is. That's why He says you can't eat the fruit. He wants to keep you under His thumb. Do you, do you see that when you start to talk about God's Word and you deny it with these kinds of reasonings and thinkings, do you, do you see how you are inevitably going to say something about God Himself? So if we were to sum all of this up, what the serpent is doing is that he is using God's Word, working against it, contradicting it, to say that this God who appears to be good, who sounds good, is in fact not as good as what He could be. And this good that He has given you, He's not giving you all the good that you could have.
And so the temptation for the woman, the temptation for the man, is to consider the word of the Lord and to say, has the Lord said, do not eat from this fruit because He is good and desires only what is good for us. In this case, He does not want us to die. Or does He not really mean that? And He's not really as good as what we thought. Is it possible that there is more good beyond what God has given us that we can take for ourselves? Ultimately, the temptation here is a question over the very nature, heart, and mind of God. It is calling into question whether or not God is good to His people. Stephen Charnock said this, Every violation of the divine law is a contempt of God's goodness. God has commanded nothing but what leads to our happiness. All disobedience implies that His law is a snare to entrap us and make us miserable and not an act of kindness to render us happy, as if He had commanded what would promote our misery and prohibited what would lead to our blessing. Do you hear that? And think for a moment, if you would, how true that is in every sinful act and choice that we make. When I disobey, isn't it because I think there is something better for me to do than what God has told me to do? Isn't it because I think that there is something better to attain or to grab hold of than what God has already given and provided for me? Every single time that I sin, every single time that I disobey God's Word, whether I consciously say this or would admit to it or not, in my heart of hearts I am saying there is something better than what God has offered and I'm going to take it. And because I have said there is something better than what God has provided, I'm saying that God is not maximally good. He may be kind of good. He may be sort of good. He may have some good things to give me, but there is more for me to have that He has not given. I don't know why He hasn't given it. He should be better than that. So let me just take what God has not given. That's what we do when we sin. This is why we say that sin is not merely a bad choice. It is not merely a mistake. It is the image bearer of the Creator who has heard the Word of God, who sees in every molecule of creation that He is good and does all things well. It is, it is us taking that and saying, but I don't believe that. I believe that there is something else that's better, and I'm going to find it for myself. And ultimately, when we deny the goodness of God, we believe that we have the wherewithal, that we have the ability to make judgments for ourselves. We determine that we will be our own judge. I know what's good for me. I know what's bad for me. I will choose it for myself. And so I take. I disobey. And all through Scripture then, all through Scripture... Because of the fact that this sin, this denial of the goodness of God for His people, because it makes a rift, it breaks fellowship between us and God, and it puts us and creation under a curse, Scripture is good. God is good in Scripture to continually call us back to His goodness. He says things to us like in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And to those who turn to Him, they will not lack any good thing. Do you, do you see? 
the, the very beginning of all of this unraveling of it being ruined is I can get a taste of something that God has withheld from me. And by tasting that, I will sink my teeth into something good. And the Lord is coming back even to broken sinners like us who do this day in and day out, who try to find goodness apart from God. And he comes back and he patiently says, no, no. That's not where you're going to taste goodness. You're not going to find it for yourself. Come back to me. There is no good apart from me. Taste and see that I am good. This then marks out human nature from this point on. That we enter into this world with a heart and a mind that desires to know good things. That has a hunger for goodness and yet looks for it in all the wrong places. It should not surprise us when the world around us is looking to find good things that will make them happy... in objects and people and experiences that are dead ends. That is common to us all. And the reason that you and I are not where we once were is because, again, the goodness and the kindness of God has pulled us out of that empty search to say, let me show you my goodness in the person of my Son, Jesus Christ. Even then, having our eyes open to see the goodness of God, don't we still wrestle with this same thing? I know that God is good. I know that God is eternally good. I am one of His children. I stand to inherit all that He is handing over to His divine Son. All of that is coming to me, and yet it never seems to be enough. I have to take something else. Romans 8, Paul says, remarks on the fact that if God, if the Father did not withhold, did not keep from giving to us His own Son, Paul says, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It is sad to see men and women trying to create and manufacture for themselves good things that they could get freely from God. But we have to acknowledge the fact that we do that same thing. And it is all the more grievous and serious for us because we have tasted the kindness of the Lord and the goodness of His Word, and we still fall prey to this temptation. Charnock goes on to say that every sin is in its own nature a denial of God to be the highest good and happiness and implies that it is no great matter to lose Him. It is forsaking Him as the fountain of life. Sin is more than just a bad choice. It's more than a mistake. It is buying into the lie that God is not good enough to give me what I want or what I need in this moment. Therefore, I must take it myself, even if that means I have to disobey. Disobedience is a defamation of God's character, and it is damning. Number two, sin brings shame, 
and drives us to hide. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, saw that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Pause right there just for a moment. Don't miss this. What does the serpent say will happen if Eve, and presumably Adam, if they eat the fruit that has been withheld from them? For God knows that what will happen? Your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened to a whole new world that you can't even begin to imagine. Question. Were their eyes opened? Yes. There is a sense in which temptation holds out to us the offer of something that it will give in some shape or form, right? I mean, there is, for example, when Moses is, is used as an example of faithfulness to God in the promises of Christ in Hebrews 11, it says that he chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Do you hear that? There is pleasure with sin. Right? right. No, oh, I, I wouldn't know. There is pleasure with sin. Otherwise, it wouldn't be near as enticing. There is a sense in which sin does give us something. There is some sort of return or payment that we get when we succumb to temptation and when we engage in sin, when we deny God so that we can promote ourselves. We do get something, but here's the catch. It is never exactly what it offers, and more often than not, it is more than what is offered. If you eat this, Eve, your eyes will be opened. You, for yourself, will not have to rely on God to tell you what is good and what is evil. You'll know that for yourself. You will know what is good and evil. You can act as your own God. You're in charge. So the woman and the man eat, and all of a sudden, the very thing that the serpent said would happen, happened. Their eyes are opened, and they see things that they have not seen before, right? But they expect that with the opening of the eyes and with the ability to see what had been withheld from them, held out of their view, that their new sight is going to lead to greater joy and greater delight. And in fact, the new sight that they get, the new experience is shame and embarrassment. They do see, they do know now what good and evil is by firsthand experience. They have lost their innocence. Rather than acknowledging that God was in fact true and right and good, in keeping them from that fruit, rather than going and seeking God out to say, how can this be fixed? Do you see what the instant response is? Rather than admitting, rather than confessing, rather than putting out there what it is that has just happened, they try to cover it up. as if they have it within their ability to keep God from seeing with His eyes what they now see themselves. You see how absurd this is? 
God sees everything. He sees and knows what they can't possibly know. But I know he won't see this. He won't see that we've disobeyed if we take some leaves and put it over ourselves. That'll fool God. You ever been there? No, 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 no. I know that this was bad. I shouldn't have done that. But if I just don't say anything about it, if I act like nothing happened, if I just keep on stiff upper lip, I can go on and nobody will know that I have rejected God in this moment to make a God of myself or that I have turned from the pleasures that God offers me to find lesser pleasures and delight in this world. Nobody has to know that. Turn with me to 1 John. First John chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say or act, or suggest, go th throw in whatever, right? If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say, or act, or suggest, or pretend that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and right to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Is it any wonder then that God tells us elsewhere, confess your sins to one another? Why would he do that? Why, why do I need to confess my sin, let alone to you? One of the reasons, if not the reason, that you confess your sin publicly, verbally, is because it puts that sin out in the light where it cannot continue to thrive anymore. It is a way to show, to indicate that you believe that God is greater than your sin. That by putting your sin, putting my sin in the light of God, that God has the ability to strike it down and to cancel it out. And it's also a statement of faith that even though... I would be deserving of punishment and judgment and wrath because of my sin. It's a statement of faith that when I acknowledge, when I confess my sin, there is someone who has already paid for that sin. And I no longer need to live in shame for what it is that I've done because that shame has been paid for and taken away. Our parents set about breaking this good, perfect order of creation. And in doing so, they hid from the presence of God. They tried to retreat and recoil from the light of His presence. And they thought they could do so with something so trivial as grabbing a bunch of leaves off a tree. 
But you and I do that every single day ourselves. We sin. We defame the name and the character of God, both privately and publicly. And we think that if we just act like nothing happened, if we just find something else to cover ourselves up with, maybe we can own up to this by doing a good deed that makes up for the bad deed. Maybe I can cover up my own sin and I won't have to worry about coming into the light of God's presence. But people, in doing that, you are, you are cheating yourself out of the goodness of God a second time. Because you're buying into the lie that having denied God's goodness and trying to establish a goodness for myself... That there is not goodness to be found in confession and forgiveness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That means after you sin, tasting and seeing the goodness of God is taking your sin before the Lord and confessing it. And watching and seeing how good God is to make you clean and make you whole again. Because of all this, turn to Romans 5. Because in the disobedience of the woman and the man... We see more than just a bad choice, but we see active opposition, a rejection, a denial of who God has revealed himself to be. It's defamation. It's an assault on the character of God. Because sin breaks the joyful fellowship that we have, and it induces shame and creates within us a reflexive desire to hide rather than running to the light. This is the way that human history has gone from this moment in Genesis 3 up to the present day. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, who is the one man? Adam. Genesis chapter 3, Adam, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skip down to verse 19, Romans 5, 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Can we start with the bad news, the bad side of the coin before we flip to the good side? Do you hear what Romans 5.12 and 5.19 is saying? Because Adam and Eve were our ancestors, our parents, because they were our representatives, when they rebelled against God, when they sinned, Instantly, everyone who would come from them, who would descend from them, enters into this world as condemned rebels. We are not, we are not, by nature, good people who do bad things. We are, by nature, God-hating rebels who do bad things because that's what God-hating rebels do. David says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. Not talking about the nature of the conception, but David acknowledging the fact that from the moment that I came into existence in my mother's womb, I was already, before I drew my first breath, before I took my first act or could do anything on my own, already I was tainted with sin and stood under God's judgment. 
Listen, this, this sin that is recorded here, do you, you understand this happens in paradise. This happens with when man and woman are innocent, when they are not broken. If, without being broken and flawed, if living in a perfect world that has everything they need, if this is the result, they succumb to temptation, what in the world hope do you and I have? We are by no means innocent. We're born guilty sinners. We do not live in a creation paradise. We live in a creation that is good, yes, that bears marks of the Creator, but that is nonetheless broken and flawed, and that leaves a lot to be desired. You think that in this environment, in your condition, you think you're going to fare better than what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3? Don't kid yourself. So how in the world is anything good going to come back to this creation after the mess that we've made it? Romans 5. God says the problem with creation was man. The resolution to the problem with creation is going to be another man. It's going to be Jesus Christ. What we need is someone that we can be tied to that is going to be able to resist the temptation of a piece of fruit. We need someone that we can be connected to, someone who will count for us, who says things like, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to do his work. who even when he was hungry did not yield to the temptation of the serpent. And unless you're finding yourself tied in with that second Adam, you have absolutely no hope that the good promises of God are yours to enjoy and yours to keep. Because apart from that second Adam, apart from Jesus Christ, you are left with what you inherit from your forefather, that first Adam, and all that you will inherit from him is sin, condemnation, guilt, and judgment. But God in his kindness says, I will fix that. Every waking moment of every day, God is nothing but good to us. We are so undeserving. So I simply want to encourage you then as we, as we wrap this passage up, be mindful of the fact that when you and I are tempted to sin, one of the things that's at work in our heart is the lie that we can find goodness apart from God, and it will never happen that way. There is no good that does not come from God Himself. There is no passing pleasure that can rival or compete with what God offers in His Word when He says that in my presence is fullness of joy and in my hand are endless delights. I pray that God would make us into a people who become thoroughly convinced that even when things are going haywire in the world around us, even if all we can do is close our eyes,
and make a statement of faith, we'll be able to say, whether in good times or bad, God is good. And he does good. And he gives good things freely to his people. Let's pray. Father, how foolish and short-sighted we are to think that we can create for ourselves any goodness apart from you. How shameful it is to think that your word is not good in all that it says to us, in all that you have revealed to us. How damning it is for us to think that we can find good outside of the good of Jesus Christ. Father, continue to open our eyes so that we see more clearly the infinite goodness and beauty of your nature and character and how freely you share that with us so that we can say, that apart from you, we desire no good thing in this earth. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for restoring to us your goodwill and the gifts that we have through Jesus Christ and the empowering work of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet as we just proclaim uh, to draw near to our God uh, through his grace. Let us continue to praise him. I am thine, O Lord. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to thy cross where thou hast died. Thank you. You're dismissed. As a as a